All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here and to bring you the Word of God. And just want to say thank you to Eric for leading us in praise this morning and for Ted to, to, uh, to lead us in prayer and shepherding our hearts. Um, and so we're going to be continuing our summer preaching series on First um, Timothy three, First Timothy two and three. Uh, today we're going to be talking about God's high calling for the elders, and the title really is a virtuous reality. Virtuous reality, God's high calling for elders, and we're going to be talking through biblical qualifications on eldership today. It is interesting how the pandemic has really forced many churches to go digital. It's even more interesting to see how Christians are reacting to these challenges. And some are embracing the digital transformation. And are talking about what they would call the virtual church. The virtual church. There are many such churches marketing themselves on social media, typically with some type of slogan, We don't care who you are or where you are. You're welcome to join us online. Another church that actually calls themselves VR Church encourages you to wear virtual reality headsets and immerse yourself in a virtual experience of church through simulation. Many younger people are now hopping from one digital sermon download through TikTok, Instagram, YouTube. You get their intake of scripture all at the expense of becoming a member of an actual church. Counterfeit churches are nothing new. They've been around ever since the apostolic age. People playing church. People playing church. Well, that's addressed in Revelation 3 to the church of Laodicea. Jesus said, you're so lukewarm that you make me want to spit you out. Counterfeit churches are nothing new. But the conversation is changing in a way that many are not prepared for. What do we do with the whole concept of a virtual or digital church? Unfortunately, that's not the topic for today. I'll, I'll leave that topic for you to, you to think about. It is worthy to put some thought into it because I do believe that this is going to be the next big crisis of the Christian church in the next generation. However, just thinking about that, it made me realize how we take for granted the concept of the elder office. How we take for granted the concept of the elder office. That's one of a few things about the church that is impossible to replicate from a consumer mindset in a digital world. And so the conclusion that I came to was that biblical elders can only be found in biblical churches. Biblical elders can only be found in biblical churches. Now, I've had conversations through members in our church. I would occasionally ask what they believe a church is. And I remember, you know, over the past many years, I've accumulated many different types of answers. Some would say that it's where we hear the preaching of God's word. Another would say it's where we gather as believers and sing together. It's where I can find Christian friends, another would say. And I remember a sister saying that it's a place where I can serve. It's a place where I can serve God. And those answers aren't necessarily bad or, 
or wrong answers. But they all miss what the essence of the church really is. And so this is the conclusion after thinking about this. What really is the church? It's forcing us. This pandemic world is really forcing us to ask once again, what does the Bible say a church truly is? And what the church really is, is a smoldering hotbed for the truth of God that must continually be protected for it to carry on. It's a smoldering hotbed for the truth of God that must continually be protected for it to carry on. Think about, you know, when I went home to visit my mother and father, we did a barbecue in the backyard and it was a charcoal grill. And think about how we had to put the coals together in that pyramid shape and we had to get the coals burning hot and we had to get the, the coals to, to, to really work together and gather together to create that smoldering fire so that we can get the proper heat to, to have our barbecue, right? And that's exactly what the church is. We don't just gather here because it's fun to, to gather or that we are entertaining ourselves here or just simply for encouragement. Every true believer is like a piece of coal. And when all of us come together, we're a smoldering hotbed for the truth of God. And I'm not just talking about big truths like the doctrine of the Trinity or salvation by faith alone and grace alone and scripture alone. Just think with me for a minute. Think with me for a minute how easy it is to compromise the truth. How easy is it to be careless with God's word? How easy is it to get carried away with a popular idea or something that makes you feel a certain way but is not taught anywhere in scripture? How easy is it to lower the standard of righteousness just to make ourselves feel justified? Remember when one of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, the scriptures clearly says that he came to Jesus by night. And when Jesus saw him, he said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? Are you the teacher in Israel? He was, if not the top teacher, one of the top teachers of Israel. And yet, what was the status of Israel at that time? Well, they were going to find out. They were going to be completely cut off from God. That they were going to be completely cut off from God. It was Israel that was supposed to be the guardian of God's truth. The nation of Israel. The leaders were supposed to shepherd and guide. But most of all, impart God's word and protect it from being corrupted. Sure, you can play church in the online world. But that's all it is. It's playing church. If corruption of the truth can happen to a group of believers, for example, the church of Laodicea, the example I said earlier, a lone ranger Christian has no chance. And a single individual has no chance in this world to live in purity of God's truth. So biblical elders can only be found in biblical churches. That is, biblical elders who teach the truth and protect the truth can only be found in biblical churches. Alexander Strzok, 
his book, Biblical Eldership, an urgent call to restore biblical church and leadership. He makes this very, very good, worthy comment to consider for us. Quote, Since the local church is the pillar and support of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15, its leaders must be rock-solid pillars of biblical doctrine, or the house will crumble. Since the local church is also a small flock traveling over treacherous terrain that is infested with savage wolves, only those shepherds who know the way and see the wolves can lead the flock to its safe destination. An elder, then, must be characterized by doctrinal integrity. End quote. When it comes to what scripture describes a church to be, it is clear that churches are to have mature, godly men to serve in the office of elder, to shepherd, protect, and guide the church. According to scripture, there is no higher leadership office than that of an elder. Sometimes scripture refers to this role as a bishop or an overseer. Any of those terms are referring to the same office of elder. But the concept of elder is found throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. This is not just an idea that popped up for the New Testament church. The word elder in ancient Israel referred to someone who had wisdom that typically came with maturity and age. So there were councils of elders. There were councils of elders. It was common for ancient societies to be ruled by some group of elders For a tribe or a city, this was common throughout history. One example of this can be found in Genesis 50 verse 7. The scripture refers to Egypt having a council of elders. For Israel, an example of this can be found in the book of Ruth, where Boaz went into town. He came into town to meet with a closer kinsman of Ruth. And it says in Ruth chapter 4 verse 2 that Boaz took the men of the elders of the city so that he can seal the deal. And even beginning with Moses in Leviticus chapter 4 verse 15, elders had certain roles to play in worship services. In Exodus 18, it was Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, that advised Moses to split up the burden by placing chiefs over thousands, hundreds, Fifties and tens. In the New Testament, if you take the book of Matthew, you'll find the term chief priests and the elders. Chief priests and the elders more than four times. However, these group of elders are the ones that opposed Jesus and eventually condemned him to be executed on the cross. The concept of elders was a common concept found in many places throughout history and in different civilizations. However, however, specifically for the New Testament church, the first time the term elders is used is found in Acts chapter 11 verse 30. Acts chapter 11 verse 30. Acts 11 It continues where the Christians are increasingly becoming scattered because of Stephen's martyrdom. And in Acts chapter 11 verse 28, the Holy Spirit informed the congregation that there would be a great famine over the world. 
And so the disciples there send relief to the church in Jerusalem by sending Barnabas and Saul, and it says right there, to the elders. To the elders. The church in Jerusalem was the first Christian church. It also had enough mature men there in the beginning to appoint elders. But pay attention to a problem that happens as Paul begins to plant churches. Pay close attention to this. If you go back to the book of Acts, starting with chapter 9, that's when Paul gets converted. If you jump forward to Acts chapter 11, Barnabas and Saul becomes ministry partners for the first time. In Acts 13 and 14, Paul goes on to his first missionary journey. And Paul and Barnabas, their first missionary journey was going along the northern coast and the western coast of Syria and moving towards the northwest through places like Seclusia, Salamis, Cyprus, Paphos, Perga, Pamphylia, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Phoenicia, Samaria, and Jerusalem to give you an idea of the number of places they visited. And then when you go to the next chapter in chapter 15, there was a controversy about whether circumcision and other parts of the Jewish law was necessary for salvation. And so Paul went down to Jerusalem to meet with the elders there, head by the apostle Peter and the half-brother of Jesus, James. And the rest of the elders of Jerusalem that day all agreed that Gentiles are to be saved the same way they were, which was through faith. Isn't that wonderful? That Gentiles are to come to salvation in the same manner that they did, which was through faith. And so chapter 15 continues. After that council, everyone celebrated. And then Paul is now ready to set out on his second missionary journey. Paul went on a total of four missionary journeys. And this is now his second missionary journey. But the second missionary journey was really about one thing on Paul's mind. In Acts chapter 15 verse 36 It says that after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. He wanted to go back. All the cities that I mentioned earlier. Because he was wondering how they were doing. And then in verse 41 of chapter 15, it says, And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Strengthening the churches. Now, why is this significant? Why am I bringing this up? Because it answers the question that we all wonder about. How does God go about strengthening the churches? How does God keep the church from apathy? Or from backsliding into sin. And to protect the church from false doctrine. God's biblical model in the church was always to have godly leaders to protect and strengthen the church. Not convinced yet? Let me go further and 
Let me highlight some more insights here. Here are some insights we can gather from this exercise. Consider that at the time of Paul, that Paul was an apostle. You would agree? Directly discipled by the visions of Christ. Mentioned in Galatians 1.12. Don't mistake this. No human being discipled Paul. No human being discipled Paul. He was a unique disciple in the sense that he didn't see the physical... Jesus and follow him physically like the 12 disciples did. But that he saw the risen Christ through vision. And he insists that no man, no human being, sent him as an apostle, nor trained him as a disciple. That was Jesus Christ. Throughout the books of Acts, Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, was doing miracles, healings, through visions, supernatural signs and wonders. Through Paul, it says in Acts chapter 19 verse 12 that even handkerchiefs and aprons that Paul touched were circulated among the sick. And they were cured. The power of God working through Paul. If anyone could have leaned on the possibility that God would simply supernaturally strengthen the churches without any additional help from him, it would have been Paul. It would have been Paul. Some people like to think, let go and let God, right? No. That's not how Paul thought. Paul thought, no, let's go. Let's go and let's make it right with God's help. That's what he thought. Paul not only witnessed many supernatural signs and wonders, but God used him as an instrument to do the miracles To many others in the early part of the ministry. But instead, Paul sees the need to go back to the churches to strengthen the churches. Which meant that he physically had to go back. The churches were early in its stage. And in many cases without qualified elders. Paul could have just stayed in Antioch, the northern part of Syria. And just pray for them, couldn't he? But no, he felt compelled to go back in person. So you can also conclude from this that if Paul never went back to those churches, a weaker, more vulnerable church would exist. A weaker, more vulnerable church would exist. So what is the consequence of a lack of biblically qualified elders in churches? It's simple. A weaker, more vulnerable church that can either be destroyed or over time degenerate like some of these examples in scripture. Think about the church of Laodicea and the lukewarm church. Think about the church of Thyatira, maybe with blatant sin in the congregation's life. Or what about the Corinthians that Paul wrote two letters to? A church that can be dominated by spiritual pride and division. Or the church of Galatia. That started to reject the gospel of grace. And to embrace legalism. How about Thessalonica? Two letters to Thessalonians. Troubled by false teachers that the resurrection had already happened. And passed by them. Or what about the Colossian church? They had a problem with wanting to trust and listen to their pastor. Who was named Epaphras. And there's many more examples of that. 
The one church that Paul had the most good things to say was the church in Philippi. And I did not notice this until I did the study that when you look at chapter 1, verse 1 of the Philippian letter, it clearly references the brethren, the deacons, and the elders separately, which is rare. Paul doesn't do that for every letter he writes. There was a reason why Paul was always thankful for the Philippian church. And it's most likely by having God's strong godly men shepherding the church so that the church remains strong. Salvation begins with a miraculous work of God to begin that good work in you as a sinner. But we must both collectively and individually work out our faith with fear and trembling. That's Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. To keep the church strong, it will take spiritual trust through prayer and it will require hard work. Nothing will replace the hard work. The church is to be led by godly men who have sound doctrine, right character, and the ability to discern false teachings. I mean, what do people think of when they think of a church leader anyways? The first thing that pops in many people's mind is inspiring. I want an inspiring leader. Some people might say, I want an intelligent problem solver. Some might say, I want a persuasive leader. And others might say, I want a visionary leader. And not to say any of those qualities are necessarily bad. God can use all four of those qualities for his glory. But for the church, his church, our Lord Christ's church, all those qualities are absolutely useless without spiritual discernment. They're useless without spiritual discernment. The Bible clearly teaches that elders are to be the frontline defense against false teaching. In other words, an elder must be able to discern between biblical, sound doctrine and false doctrine. This is consistent with what Paul was so concerned about even until the end of his ministry and subsequently the end of his life. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 3. He says to Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And then Titus chapter 1 verse 5. Titus was discouraged too, just like Timothy was, about the false teachers and how hard it was. But Paul responds, this is why I left you in Crete. Yes, all those problems you mentioned. I know about those problems. And that's precisely why, Titus, I left you in Crete so that you might put what remain to order and appoint elders. In every town. As I directed you. The church is to be led by godly men. 
who have sound doctrine, right character, and the ability to discern doctrinal error. Now, this doesn't happen automatically overnight. A congregation of a church should not only pray for the elders or leaders or even the more mature men. Maybe there are no elders in some churches, right? But for godly men to be raised within the church body to strengthen the elder office within the church. Everyone should be praying for that. And everyone should be striving for that aim. If you have your Bibles... Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 with me, verses 1 through 7, as this will be our main passage for today. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And I'm going to read the word of God. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, but violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, Keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace. Into a snare of the devil. Notice right there the devil is mentioned twice. The stakes are high. The stakes are so high for the calling of elders. The other list for qualifications of elders are found in two other places in scripture. The other ones in Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9. And the biggest explicit difference in both of these lists, the one in Titus and the one that we just read, is that it explicitly mentions one part that I believe 1 Timothy presumes. It says in verse 9 of Titus 1, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it which is in line of the expectations that I've already mentioned. Now the third passage, when it mentions elders and who they should be, is found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-5. through 5, Where the Apostle Peter directly exhorts elders, that he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd, that's a command. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, 
exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then it says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, if I had to summarize Peter's exhortation to the elders with one word, it would just simply be the word humility. Elders are to be humble, willing to serve and not doing it for any type of personal gain. Not be domineering over the sheep, but the command that Peter gives to all elders as a fellow elder is to shepherd. That's a command to the elders, the flock of God that is among you. Now let's go back to 1 Timothy. Let's see what Timothy and see what Paul has to say about what a church should be looking for. And 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 7 can be broken down to just three general qualities, I would say, of who, who they should be looking for, of who a church should be looking for as potential elders in the church. Three qualities. The first one, a man with a virtuous ambition. Number two, a man with venerable character. And then number three, a man with a validated faith. Number one, a man with a virtuous ambition. Number two, a man with a venerable character. And then number three, a man with a validated faith. So finally... I've come to our first point. First, a church should be looking for a man with virtuous ambition. Virtuous ambition. It says right here in verse 1 that the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, I just want to point out three main things about that one verse. First of all, desiring to be an elder is a good thing. I I run into so many people in the church, young men especially, that to bring up the concept of potentially becoming an elder is something to run away from. It's something to, to maybe chuckle at or, or push away. But there's no rebuke here about desiring to be an elder. Paul's saying that it's a good thing. It's to be expected. And I would say that first, desiring to be elder is good. Second, desiring to be elder is critical. It's critical. It's a critical part of someone's potential of being an elder. And Peter says this in something similar in 1 Peter 5.2, that serving as an elder must not be out of compulsion. What does that mean? You can't be persuaded into this. 
Don't expect the elders to force you into these positions, young men. The elder is not going to make you feel guilty for not wanting to be an elder. We're not going to try to pull you into this role. No, we're simply going to ask, do you have a willing desire? It's a critical part of of this desire of the office. And then number three, desiring to be an elder is good. Desiring to be an elder is critical. But desiring to be an elder is virtuous. It's a virtuous task. A noble task. It's a synonym. So if a man desires to be an elder, the man must see the role as one being a noble role. The word noble may be translated differently depending on the Bible translations. NASB says it's a fine work. The New King James Bible says it's a good work. And then other translated as it's an excellent work. But that Greek word, it conveys the idea of something that has an honor, a high set of ideals in regards to view of moral standards. It's a virtuous task. It's a virtuous task. This is not a calling for everyone. This is not a calling for everyone. In 1917, the United States had a problem um, convincing citizens to join the military. And so some of you might, you know, you guys are a young generation, but you guys might have seen some Uh, throwback posters of Uncle Sam pointing saying, Uncle Sam wants you. And that was started back in 1917. It was a marketing gimmick or campaign to try to convince people to join the military, join the army especially. But now jumping forward to almost 100 years later, today the military realized that this is not something everyone is called to do. The United States military today has taken a different approach. You will notice that there's not a lot of commercials saying, Uncle Sam wants you, or, hey, come, because this is good for you, and, you know, it's going to be great for your future. The military has changed its marketing message over time because they've learned the lesson that this is not something for everyone. A church should be compelled It should compel and train men that want to be trained. Because this is not something that everyone is called to do. I prefer today's U.S. Marine, their slogan now. What is it? They say, will you make the cut? Will you make the cut? I would much prefer churches to use a slogan. Like that. So the first thing a church should look for is a man with a virtuous ambition. The second thing a church should look for is a man with venerable character. Venerable character. Venerable in what way? Venerable as a respectable. This is a respectable role. It's going to require the respect of others, of those you lead for you to be successful. After Paul makes the broad point that the elder role as a whole is a virtuous noble task, he starts getting into the details. In verses 2 to 7, I counted a total 
of 14 requirements. 14 requirements. Paul was not mincing any words here. But the list of 14 requirements, it starts with the first requirement that's acting more like the general umbrella over all the requirements. It's acting like a general headline, you can think. That he must be above reproach. He starts off by saying, he must be above reproach. Venerable character starts off with the concept of being above reproach. And the word reproach, it means to do something deserving of shame, disgrace, or rebuke. Again, it doesn't mean an elder is without sin, and that the elder is going to have to repent at times and apologize for things and weaknesses. We're not saying that the elder needs to be perfect here. But the concept of reproach is doing something that deserves shame, disgrace, or a rebuke. The danger that these qualifications are addressing is it's addressing the idea of bringing disgrace publicly to the body of Christ body of Christ. Um, there was a, about a month and a half ago, an article that I stumbled upon about a local pastor who had to step down. He resigned. And it, I had to read the story. I, I, was, I was obviously curious about what was happening. It turned out that someone in his, the children's ministry of the church that he was pastoring at, a young man was identified as a pedophile in the children's ministry. And after further investigation, the congregation, or I think they were, they were covering this, but the media, I should say, the media found out that the young man was the pastor's son. The pastor's son. What excuse did the pastor have of putting his son that he knew struggled with pedophilia in the children's ministry? That type of lapse in judgment brought great reproach onto the church, especially when the public media got a hold of that news. And after over a year of investigation, the pastor was being patient with the congregation investigation. He, he claimed he was innocent, that he had the best of intentions. But what happened was the media took it as, wow, look, the Christian church, how irresponsible they are. That's what we're talking about, about being above reproach. That when you are being attacked for your character, that they can't seem to apprehend you for that crime. But in this particular case, it was too much pressure for this pastor to take. So what we have here is the general headline above reproach. And then I will give you this recommendation that that general headline gives the context for the rest of the 13 qualifications. Because a lot of these qualifications, you can take a legalistic approach and you can sort of stretch out its qualifications to serve some type of uh, a fleshly desire to see your leaders be a certain way. But that's not the goal here. The goal here is for a man 
that you cannot publicly convict someone of, of not having these qualities. And so, none of these 14 qualifications are isolated requirements, but rather you can find all these concepts reiterated in other parts of Scripture. And so, it's important that these aren't new qualifications that Paul has brought up. So, in other words, if you want a picture of what a mature Christian is to look like, you can take all 14 of these qualifications and see a full picture of what it means to be a mature Christian. Out of the 14 requirements, I've separated the list in a way that can be easier to follow. Because 14 qualifications is a lot. So, write these six down if you are taking notes. I've separated the 14 qualifications in six categories. Number one, what he should aim for. Number one, what he should aim for. Number two, who he is. Number three... Who he's not. Number four, where his children are. Number five, when he was saved. And then number six, how he is viewed. Number one, what he aims for. Number two, who he is. Number three, who he's not. Number four, where his children are. Number five, when he was saved. And then number six, how he's viewed. Okay? And so, for number one, what he aims for, it's very simple. It's just that first qualification. Above reproach. That's what he aims for. He aims for it to be above reproach. But he doesn't do this in a superficial way where he just knows how to get out of trouble. He knows that if he doesn't address all the private sins in his heart, all those private things he does when no one's looking, that he will be under reproach at some point in his life. This person is going to be a wise person who understands that God knows everything. That God sees everything. And God never ever is satisfied with just the outward appearance of godliness. Remember what Jesus said, right? In the Old Testament, don't commit adultery. In the New Testament, don't even think about it. In the Old Testament, don't commit murder. In the New Testament, don't even hate someone in your heart. I remember a pastor talking with a Jewish person. He said that the Jewish person felt like that the New Testament requirements are harder than the Old Testament requirements. And it's not surprising when Jesus says that the standard is not your outward appearance. It's always been your heart. It's always been your heart. So, yes, he aims to be above reproach. And that gives some room for grace for the elder, for the pastor. And all of us need grace, don't we? But it starts with the heart. The man will know The only way he's going to stay above approach is to manage his own spiritual walk with Christ. Okay? So that's number one. What he aims for, that's his aim. He's going to aim to be above reproach. Number two, the category of who he is, who he is, we're going to count 
the next two qualifications under who he is. Husband of one wife is what it says in the ESV, but it's literally better translated as a one-woman man. One-woman man. This type of phrasing, it's mentioned a total of three times in Scripture. A one-man woman, the opposite for the widows that qualify for the widow program in the church, is found in 1 Timothy chapter 5. It's interesting that the same phrase is used, but it's switched. That the widow has to be a one-man woman. And so sometimes this has a few debates about it. But remember, the idea here is to stay above reproach. To stay above reproach. I mean, imagine if one year into serving as an elder, the elder announces, well, I tried my best in my marriage, but I think I need to get a divorce. That's not above reproach, right? Or a married elder having a secret girlfriend. Ooh, that's disgrace. Or a married elder flirting with other women. I mean, this type of stuff. How about an, a mar- an, an elder who's addicted to pornography? Oh, the congregation gets a hold of that, right? This is the type of stuff that the man cannot allow into his life. He must repent from all these things. And if we look at Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. You know, when, when God is, is pronouncing judgment on Israel... Malachi 2.14, God says, you know, basically Israel is saying, why are you judging us? Why are you judging us? And then God says, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. See, we read the Old Testament and we're puzzled by the fact that God allowed polygamy. But it doesn't mean that God liked it. It doesn't mean that it added to their holy walk with the Lord. This is the same Lord in Malachi in the Old Testament saying that because you haven't kept your marriage covenant to the wife of your youth. And so this is a virtuous task. Didn't I say that? Isn't Paul saying that this is a noble task that he needs to live up to high ideals of moral standards? This is a man who is content with one woman in his life. Now, there's technicalities here. I mean, what if a man gets divorced because the, the wife commits adultery and wants to get remarried? Sure. I mean, those are what I would call uh, requires deeper case-by-case decisions from the church. There are ways for the elder to get remarried and it's not a disgrace to the church. That it's, it still remains above reproach. There are ways to go about this. Jesus does give some provision for divorce in Um, in sexual immorality, for instance. But this is not the aim of the man. This is not what the man is aiming for. Did you know what the record is for the most number of marriages under one man in the Guinness Book of World Record? It's a man by the name of Glenn Wolfe. 29 times in his life. What a disgrace. He was a Baptist preacher. Can you believe it or not? No business being in the pulpit. 
And we all remember this, the Samaritan woman at the well. You guys remember how many times she was married? I, I recall seven times, right? So in this society, when Paul's writing this, divorce was rampant. Divorce was rampant. Or side girlfriends in the Roman Greco empire, very common. Right? But none of that should be characterized by this man. So, a one-woman man, all right? Who he is. I'm going to continue on the second thing. This is still under the umbrella of the second quality, who he is. He's sober-minded. He's sober-minded. Now, sober-minded, this Greek word here, you know, if you look at a lexicon, it'll tell you the, the Greek, you know, the nuance of the word and the definition of the word. And it's really talking about making judgments with a clear mind. Not being influenced by substance. Think about that. Is it okay for Christians to smoke marijuana now that it's legalized? I would say that that should not be the aim of a Christian. Being that, a mature Christian wants to be sober-minded. Okay? It's not being influenced by wine, let alone marijuana or recreational drugs or definitely illegal drugs, right? So Greek word has a similar root as the Greek word for fasting. It sounds similar in the Greek, the word for fasting. And why did Jesus fast before he chose the 12 disciples? So that he can make a clear judgment, right? So those ideas are related. So how disappointed would you be finding out that the elder was drinking alcohol at night because the ministry was so successful? I mean, this is not the type of man you're looking for. How about the next one? Self-controlled, still under the idea idea of who he is. He's self-controlled. He's self-controlled, who he is. It comes from the idea of a balanced perspective on life that is based on divine wisdom. Now, often, when people talk about balance in the Christian faith, they start thinking, ooh, mysticism. Oh, stop talking like that. It's not about balance. You know, Taoism with the light and the dark and, you know, the yin and the yang. And and I think that, um, you know, New Age mysticism definitely is a dangerous concept because they believe that balance is the goal in every part of life without any prescription from the word of God. But this is a a balanced perspective on life that is based on God's word. That is based on God's word. the, The word is sophron, acting in God's definition of balance. It's making someone genuinely temperate. That you're not making um, mountains out of molehills of situations. That you're not overreacting to stuff constantly and anxious when you don't need to be anxious. It's uh, interesting that the, the, the Greek word here is similar to the inner organs of the diaphragm that regulates life, breathing, and a regular heartbeat. That's the idea here of being self-controlled. Number four, respectable, still under the idea of who he is. Respectable, and this goes under the venerable character, right? Respectable. So, I mean, this is what it it, it sounds like. This person is a respectable person, meaning that when someone encounters this elder, this potential elder, is their natural inclination to respect the person. You know, that's, that's really what it is. It comes from the word that this person has an orderly life. This person's got his act together. Um, it's, the Greek word originates from the word cosmos, where the word cosmetics comes from, to put something that's in chaos into order, right? 
So that's the idea. How disappointing would it be to find out an elder couldn't be on time to anything or that he's a pack rat living in a big mess in his house? These are the kind of things that would bring some people to have a hard time respecting the person. And the next one, we're still under the umbrella of who he is, is hospitable. He's hospitable. And the word hospitable here in the Greek, it it really conveys the idea of loving strangers. It means loving people that you don't have any previous relationship with. And, you know, the hotel industry in the United States, we call that the hospitality industry because that's where the word comes from. It's providing accommodations to strangers. So hospitality in the Bible is also about providing room and board to believers passing through town. This was common in the New Testament time. So common that John had to correct a woman in the letter of 2 John, that you are being way too accommodating to false teachers. You do not want to show that type of love to false teachers. Or, because it says right here in verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So there is a line to draw here. But you want to be characterized as a hospitable person. I mean, how disappointing it is that every stranger that walks through the door in the church, the elder looks in disgust, right? This is not how Jesus wants us to be. You know what the fear of aliens is called? Xenophobia. It's called xenophobia, the fear of aliens or the fear of strangers, right? And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that we must be perfect as the Father is perfect. So we are to show common grace to strangers. In Leviticus chapter 23 verse 22, harvest time, the Israelites were even commanded to harvest their grain and to leave um, the edges alone so that when strangers walk through the, the nation, they can glean off and have some food to eat. It's a wonderful picture of God's love. And then, because we're still under the next qualification, under the umbrella of who he is, is he has to be able to teach He has to be able to teach. He's got to be skillful in teaching. And interesting that the Greek word, there's a little bit of a nuance about it, that the the best teachers in the Greek society knew how to make people more teachable. Think about that. The best teachers in the Greek society, they've used this word because this, this teacher had the ability to get people's guard down and that he was able to teach them. So, so this is that able to teach requirement. And it assumes already that the elder has the right knowledge of scripture, of course. And that he's able to impart God's truth. And so the presumption is that the elder is a student of the word of God. So you need to be a good communicator. Alright, so we got under um, who he is. We have... Husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospital, and able to teach. All right, we're going to go to the next category. He's called who he's not. Who he's not. All right, and so who is he not? He's not a drunkard, and this is really self-explanatory, so I'm not going to spend too much long here, but it's really someone who sits long with the wine and goes to the bars, all right? Um... This one, uh, the next one, it says not quarrelsome, but a peaceable person. This is not someone who is contentious or loves to get into arguments and fights. That's really what it means. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's the type of elder you want. You don't want elders 
that are constantly causing controversy and contention within the elder board of the church. That's, that would be a, a very disgraceful and reproaching thing to have. And then the next one, he's not a lover of money. That's what this word actually literally means. That he's not fond of silver. He's not covetous of money. He's free from the love of materialism. He's not dominated by the desire of financial gain. I mean, how disappointing would it be that you found out your elder was a day trader? Or going to casinos because he's trying to hit that jackpot. Right? This is not the exemplifying trust in the Lord. Right? In Proverbs, it actually tells you that he who gains wealth little by little keeps it. But he who gains wealth quickly will lose it quickly. All right? So we are not looking for jackpot type of wealth people. All right? And that's very popular in this day and age. Um, we got, so not a lover of money. First uh, Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Ooh. And then Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That qualification is not just for elders, folks. This day and age, where people are enamored with the stock market and hitting the next startup or lottery tickets, you know, gambling in the casinos, it... it, this type of mentality should not characterize you as the believer. And so it's general qualification for the Christians, but obviously needs to be exemplified in elders. Now, that's who he's not. We're going to go to where his children are. This is the fourth category, where his children are. Okay, And this is the whole manager concept. Now, the word overseer for an elder... It highlights how the elder has a spiritual manager mindset towards the church. And so, right now, Paul is now comparing his ability to manage his own family to how he would manage the household of God. Manage household well by raising obedient children. Or keeping your children under, under submission, right? So, Proverbs 22, verse 6. The elders, elders need to exemplify these things that the Bible talks about parenting. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Proverbs 13, verse 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. Think about that. Think about that. Think about how Christians today have to hide the fact that they're spanking their children. I mean, back in these days, spanking was such a normal part of discipline. But see how crazy young people are behaving in this world now. Whoever spares the rod, you hate your child. But he who loves their children, they diligently discipline them. Psalm 127 verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb of reward. Don't complain that you have children. I know it's easy to do. But children are a gift. I know some people chuckle in my joke when the next person has a pregnancy, when they already have four kids. 
and a little bit of a joke like, oh my gosh, instead of celebrating. The biblical mindset for children is that they are a reward from God. They are a reward. They are a heritage. Proverbs 29 verse 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Now that word shame is also connected with the word uh, reproach, which is obviously the context of all these qualifications for the elder. So how does a child bring shame to the parents? Or in this case, bring shame to the office of elders? According to Proverbs 29.15, a child left to himself. Now, a lot of people think that this qualification is unfair. Children are crazy. Some children will be sinful no matter how much you try to teach them. Well, it's true. There's some aspect of that. And I think there's a level of understanding within the congregation of how difficult it is to raise children. We're not, we're not expecting perfect children out of elders. Again, that grace and mercy is there. But we can tell, people can tell when a child is being left to himself. Do you guys get this? There is a difference between a child struggling with his own sinful flesh or a child who's behaving like there's no authority over him. There's a huge difference. So the potential elder must exemplify being able to exert spiritual authority in the family. How about this one? Some parents are driven crazy that their kids keep you know, rebelling and not obeying. Proverbs 19.18. Proverbs 19.18. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. You think some parents are discouraged only in this modern times. This proverb was written many, many hundreds of years ago. Thousands of years ago. All the parents are still struggling with the same problems of a hardened heart from their child. Discipline them. Discipline them. Don't be overly harsh. Like, you know, don't provoke your children, like it says in Colossians 3.21, lest they become discouraged. There's a, there is a, a line to disciplining your children. But, but do it. Do it. Do it out of love. And do it faithfully. So, that concludes the part of where... His children are. And we're going to run, run into when he was saved. When he was saved. And this is going to be under that third big category. Remember I said that we got to look for a virtuous ambition, venerable character. Now we're moving into a section that I was calling earlier, validated reputation. This man has to have validated reputation. A validated reputation. This is a when he was saved comment. A when he was saved comment. You don't want to put someone who was just saved, right? I mean, this is, this is common sense, but it needs to be talked about. That there have been a lot of instances in churches, me talking with pastors, that they tried to put someone a bit too young into an associate pastor or senior pastor position. And I don't like to bring up old history, but we've had some problems in those kind of situations well in the history of this, in our own church. But we need to have someone who's really proven themselves over time. A validated reputation. A validated faith. And that takes time. In James chapter 3 verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Who is? Who's a potential elder here? 
By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. There's got to be good works. There's got to be fruit. There's got to be fruit. There's got to be consistency in this person's life. Um, They're not just wavering one week, missing church, and the next week, you know, emotionally, you know, uh, repentant about it, and back and forth, and, you know, those kind of things should be leveled off, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, right? If that new creation is not happening in your life, I think the very basic question I will ask you is, have you repented properly in your life? Have you repented properly in your life? The elder must exemplify true repentance in his life. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 to 4. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not. Okay? It's good to wait and see the fruit in a new convert's life. Give them some time to show where they are in their spiritual walk. And then now we're going to the sixth category of these 14 qualifications. Okay? How he's viewed by outsiders. How he's viewed by outsiders. And he must be thought of well by outsiders, which might be a surprise. Okay, and I want to explain this a little bit. We know that Grace Community Church right now is not being thought of well by outsiders. But Grace Community Church, under the leadership and shepherding of John MacArthur, they made a choice that is, uh, has a biblical basis for it. They're not making a choice to try to uh, disappoint the outsiders, but they are making a choice that they believe honors the Lord. And by being... Doing so in a unified fashion as a church, there is no reproach for Pastor John MacArthur. The church is unified. There's no, there's no division in the church about, about that matter, about um, meeting together as a congregation you know, without masks and uh, despite the, the court orders and things like that. In fact, a lot of people found it inspiring if you're a Christian. So, this whole idea about the outsider thing, you don't want to take this too far. Um, it says right here that, you know, keep your conduct, it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitations. Is it expected that they're going to call us evildoers? Yes! Outsiders will not understand because a natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. We understand that. So what are we talking about here? Some people's characters are extra good at church, but when they're at their workplace or among their friends, sometimes the standard can be lowered. You don't want to put someone in the elder office where someone walks into church. You put that drunk in there? What do you mean? I see him drinking every night or every weekend. You put that guy in there, he smokes marijuana. Some inconsistency we're talking about. The outsiders are the final filter. You don't put someone in the elder office where he's just beloved by his own family and those close to him in the church. That's easy. If you like me, 
Of course you're going to support me. But what about people who have some distance from you as a relationship? What do they say about you? Do they at least respect the fact that you are upholding Christian values even though they don't agree with it? Outsiders will not agree about Christian principles. Of course not. But Matthew 5.16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they, who? The outsiders, may see your good works and glorify God, the Father who is in heaven. Think about that. The church exists primarily to shine the good works that the Holy Spirit is doing so that outsiders will glorify God. So, how do we make this requirement? This requirement is about inconsistency. Again, it's about disgrace to Christ and his body. There's a difference between um, being persecuted together as a church or being singled out as one man for not upholding the character traits that he claims to, to have. There's a difference. There's a difference. So who should the church be looking for? In a potential elder. A man with a virtuous ambition. A man with venerable character. And a man with validated reputation. Now let me close with this. Let me close with this. When I was asked to serve as an elder about seven years ago. I I knew I wasn't perfect. I knew I had a lot of studying to do in scripture. There were some tough trials that God put me through to grow. And there were times I had to be persuaded that I was wrong about some things. And there are times when I was filled with joy watching someone grow in Christ. And then there have been heartache watching others walk away. The role is truly a test of application of scripture in every respect. And ultimately a test of my own humility. Now with that said, I certainly didn't know exactly what I was getting into when I stepped into this role. But I knew with all my heart that God called me here. I never once doubted that. Ultimately, I just want to leave this thought, and this is an idea that deserves a sermon on its own, but I just wanted to leave it at this thought. Being an elder or a deacon, or any type of service for that matter, is a calling from the Lord. It's a calling from the Lord. I love serving as an elder here at LBCSJ. It's truly an honor, and it's one that I take seriously. I love his church, LBC. I love you as a congregation, as my fellow brothers and sisters. And I love serving alongside godly men like Pastor Mark and Ted. I look forward to training and bringing up godly men who can be godly leaders here. And so I urge you all to pray. I urge you all to pray. Because God uses sinners like me and he turns them into godly men to lead his church, to strengthen the church, to protect the flock, and to build you up to grow. And a strong church only helps all of us to be better prepared for the coming of our Lord, the head of the church himself, one day. Biblical elders can only be found in a biblical church.
No other type of digital experience could ever replicate that. And that's God's model in keeping the church strong. And so, I pray that all of us won't take the elder office for granted. And it's something that we can continue to strengthen over time so that the whole congregation can be strengthened along with it. Dye your heads with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, this is a message that this world and in this particular point of human history, we are, it's going to be attacked, it's going to be assaulted. There will be some who say the elder office is antiquated, it's obsolete. Some will say that the elder office is the least of the things that they're seeking when they're looking for a church. But your word is so clear. That the church is only as mature as the most mature godly men in the church. And with that said, I pray for the elder board of LBCSJ, Mark, myself, and Ted, that you continue to sanctify our hearts and you cultivate that love for your word so that we can follow you with all of our hearts. That the head of the church may rule here through the preaching of your word, and through the wisdom that you imparted to us, that we can apply and obey it. Give us that spiritual discernment that's required of your elders, Lord. Let us do this faithfully. But most of all, let us do it with joy and love for Christ and for the church. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.